All right. Are we good? Here we go. We're on. I hear we have audio. Live from Salt Lake City, this right. is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in test, spirit test, and in test. truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We have yeah, so much right, right to talk about tonight. It's not a night for our graphics There's to go no down. Graphics. From what I'm understanding, right. they may be down. And Are it's not good? a night for our audio to go down. And from Here what I go. understand, it did. We're on. But we're going to keep I going forward. Audio. How about... Some news Live from the from world Salt Lake City. of the, the matter where we do all Word we Life to Church God in, in upstate New York. Truth. Got I'm this from Wendy J. So An article much, says a 19-year-old man died and his brother is in the hospital after being right. beaten they by their be parents down. and it's members of an upstate New York church in an effort to get the teens to confess their sins. Police said. Lucas Leonard was pronounced dead Monday after being taken to the hospital in New Hartford, and his 17 year old brother Christopher is in serious condition. Both brothers were continually subjected to physical punishment over the course of several hours in the hopes that each would confess prior sins and ask forgiveness. The police said. Four other members of the Word of Life Church were also charged in the assault. Uh, according to the officer, a church counseling session on Sunday night was held and the session turned physical. You think? Leonard uh, was taken to the hospital. I'm sorry I'm laughing. It's not funny. To the hospital Monday morning after the church member noticed he wasn't breathing. You know, this is, is so sad, but it is really, really kind of a picture of what we do to people. Is we get them in the church, and if we're not physically beating them, this is really an aberration, and this is an extreme, of course. But we do the same thing. There's, 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 there's still the same spirit to some degree when people are told to submit to another person's discipline really and to another person in the religion's church to do, do something that they the want them to do. Imagine if these boys refused to comply to the authority. Oh, wait, they but did. The same thing and look what happened to them. They're, one's dead and one's uh, in the hospital in serious condition. We do that to each other, just in a spiritual sense. We berate and we counsel and we discipline and we ostracize and we do the same thing. We just don't use our fists. And, uh, you know, what a sad, sad story, but not unheard of in religion when human beings actually believe they have the right to insert themselves between the individual and God. Speaking of men inserting themselves in between God and the individual, I guess last week I said something to the effect that the LDS has a culture that when the prophet speaks, the thinking has been done. Uh, of course, the tone that would have come along with my comment would have been snarky, I'm sure. And uh, such a culture, in any case, uh, I said existed, and I received this email. I'm sharing it with you to show you the mindset of people who defend their faith, in this case, Latter-day Saint. The emailer said, quote, Sean, I think the only Mormon who believes that when the prophet speaks, the thinking is done is you. <laughs> Uh, the emailer then went on to say, quote, several instances in our scriptures or history are there that encourage us to ponder on all that we receive and that we have our free agency. The email concludes with, quote, there are enough talks and articles on this topic 
that should help people to know that this label you're trying to pin on us is far from the mark, end quote. Now, I never said that the LDS don't teach also to seek and ponder. They do. And uh, I never said anything about not having free agency to reject what the prophet says. But in the end, when the brethren speak, the general LDS populace believe that most critical thinking has been done, if not all of it. Uh, when he wrote and said, you're the only one who believes this to be true, I said, well, so did Boy K. Packer and Ezra Taft Benson. He wrote back and said, Boy K. Packer did not believe that in the literal sense that you are trying to put forth near the Ezra Taft. I challenge you, he says, to prove me wrong. Now, my days of uh, pissing contests with people about who's right and who's wrong, and I challenge you to prove this, are done. Uh, but I do know the LDS culture, and I know that Packer and Taft and others have intimated things like this in the past. Uh, but So I'm not going to spend time trying to debate this, but he writes me back and he says, when I say I'm not going to debate it, he says, in other words, you can't. And he writes, we both know it. Therefore, he says, any continuance of this claim constitutes a lie and you will be judged for it. <sighs> I was in a, a McDonald's the other morning and uh, a ravening dispensationalist from a local reasonable church came up and said, you are going to hell for teaching that Jesus has already returned and going to hell. And I, I tried to explain, I don't think this is an issue we need to divide over. And he said, you and I worship a different Jesus. And I said, you know, you're sounding really, 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 really familiar to something else that I've heard. And, and I just can't believe that like this emailer, getting back to the email, will say, you will be judged. You are lying. This other guy says, you are going to hell. Uh, if I've learned anything over the past 10 years of doing this, I have learned not to make accusations. I, I still do and I fail, but I mean, let's hold back on accusations of people's future eternal destiny and their stance relative to Christ Jesus. I realize we have differing opinions on doctrines and stuff, but anyway, I thought I'd give some quotes to our emailer tonight just to show that he, I think, is wrong. Uh, when it comes to LDS doctrine, the LDS cannot think for themselves. When it comes to doctrine, to quote Brigham Young, there is but one man on the earth at one time who holds the keys to receive revelations for the church and who has the authority to write doctrines by way of commandment unto the church. Therefore, doctrinal thinking is done once it's been given. Doctrinal thinking done. That's what that supports. LDS people are not supposed to do their own thinking. This, came, this comes from a quote. Uh, from the Deseret News Church section on May 5th, 1945. It says, quote, Any Latter-day Saint who denounces or opposes, whether actively or otherwise, any plan or doctrine advocated by the prophets, seers, and revelators of the church is cultivating the spirit of apostasy. One cannot speak evil of the Lord's anointed and retain the Holy Spirit in his heart. This sort of game is Satan's favorite pastime, and he practices its... Uh, to believing souls since Adam. He, Satan, wins a great victory when he can get members of the church to speak against their leaders and to do their own thinking." End quote. 
So that's from the church-owned uh, Deseret News, 1945. In one of the first admittances of the thinking has been done once leaders speak, we read back in 1945 too, quote, when our leaders speak, the thinking has been done. That's a quote. That's a quote. When they propose a plan, it is God's plan. When they point the way, there is no other which is safe. When they give directions, it should mark the end of controversy. God works in no other way. To think otherwise without immediate repentance may cost one his faith, may destroy his testimony, and leave him a stranger to the kingdom of God. Deseret News, 1945. Marion G. Romney, quoting LDS prophet Heber J. Grant, said in 1972, ensign article to young men in the LDS priesthood, quote, my boy, you always keep your eye on the president of the church, and if he tells you to do something wrong and you do it, the Lord will bless you for it, end quote. To me, that says when they speak, the thinking has been done. Even if they tell you to do something wrong, he says, my boy, do it, and God will bless you for it. I don't know how many more, uh, you know, in Eldon Tanner, when I was in high school, he was a member of the First Presidency. He said, when the prophet speaks, quote, the debate is over. I think I've proved the point. I have one from uh, James Faust, uh, Boyd K. Packer. Speaking of people who make their living, historians, uh, going through and discovering the history of the LDS Church says this. One who chooses to follow the tenets of his profession, speaking of, church, of historians, regardless of how they may inquire, excuse me, regardless of how they may injure the church or destroy the faith of those not ready for advanced history, is himself in spiritual jeopardy. If that one is a member of the church, that talking about a historian, he has broken his covenants and will be accountable. There's that finger pointing. After all of the tomorrows of mortality have been finished, listen, he will not stand where he might have stood. That's a, that's a direct threat to any historian who is looking at the truth and wants to report it accurately that if that truth that they're revealing goes against the LDS church, Packer directly says, they are losing their stance in the eternities uh, to where they could have stood. Ezra Taft Benson, in his 14 points of following the prophet, he gives a whole bunch. He says the prophet will never lead the church astray. The prophet can receive revelation on any matter, temporal or spiritual. I mean, that's even now delving in when the prophet can receive revelation on temporal or spiritual matters. That means the prophet of the LDS church could say to somebody in a temporal sense, I think you should sell your business down there that's selling beef and because I'm the prophet and it's a temporal matter, but I believe the Lord wants you to do that just so that his own uh, son can open up a, a place next door. I mean, it's endless how much that attitude prevails that once the brethren have spoken, the thinking has been done. Now you tell me in light of all that I've just read, read to you, is there a culture that's alive and well in the LDS church that supports the notion that when the brethren or prophet or leaders speak, that the thinking has been done and that the debate is over. And I think it's pretty clean. Listen, uh, we have posted on our campus website, if we haven't, we're going to, our, the way we see Christianity, a very subjective approach. And this is what it says. I think we have graphics for it. 
It's the subjectivist manifesto, and this is what it says. As believers in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, standing firm on a foundation of apostles and prophets and led of the Holy Spirit of God, we openly and independently choose to support the principles of subjective Christianity, which are partially summarized in the following. One, we seek to help put an end to doctrinal and denominational division, alienation over praxis or theology, and the poor treatment of any person who, politely or rudely, differ with our personal beliefs regarding biblical interpretation or the elements of the Christian faith. The second one, we seek to patiently accept all people in love, with love being defined as 1 Corinthians 13, all people, all the time. Next one, we will not judge the salvation or eternal standing of any person who professes faith in Christ with the understanding that we all see through a glass darkly and are all maturing in the faith at different rates relative to our understanding, interpretation, and application of the Word of God. And the next one, we openly recognize that God and His ways are utterly objective. But when they are presented to fallen man, his objective truths are subjectively interpreted and understood. We therefore maintain that genuine Christianity exists between the heart of the individual and God himself and is manifested in love to others. We therefore do not believe any individual or institution has the right to make doctrinal demands of any person, but instead trust that God will, by and through his spirit, make disciples unto himself. And then finally, we therefore submit ourselves to trusting in God through Christ by the Holy Spirit, believing that He, in the end, will bring all believers to a unity of the faith. We claim that it is the Christian duty to first preach Jesus, to teach the Word without strife and to the best of our ability, to walk with relentless faith in God, and to love Him and our fellow man unconditionally. That's the way we would interpret subjective Christianity. And we challenge more pastors, more churches, to consider the tenets of it as they reach and teach and serve selflessly our King. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? Who's going to give the prayer? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Okay, we've been going through books of the New Testament and pulling out, culling out, uh, you know, passages that support the idea that our relation, our Christian walk is subjective. And uh, tonight we are in Hebrews. We've come to Hebrews. And there's some longer passages here. Try to hang with me because they really do say something that is about the individual and their walk with God relative to the spirit within them. Uh, the writer of Hebrews suggests, one, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. Now remember, we are the house of Israel. We all become the sons of Abraham. We are all Israel by faith in Christ. He says, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be unto them a God, and they shall be unto me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old, that first covenant old. 
now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Meaning, laws written in stone. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians, hey, the, the, the faith is not in ink. The faith is in spirit. Okay? Hebrews 9.11 says, But Christ is come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands to say not of this building. That's an allusion to the idea that the body of Christ is made of believers by the Spirit. This is not about these material buildings anymore. And I know that's a really loose interpretation of that passage. Nevertheless, consider it. Hebrews 9, 13, 14 says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying in the flesh, listen, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience, your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again, it's talking about the appeal God makes to the individual, their conscience. That person is responsible for their walk to God. That person who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit will die and is responsible for how they interpreted what it means to be a Christian and how they walked. We don't need to do that to each other. We will love each other and we will let God be the judge and we will let God do that uh, uh, vetting of our Christian walk. Hebrews 10, 16 said, This is the covenant that I will make with him in those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds will I write them. That's subjective. And then there's a long one. Now, please Read this long one on your own. Go and read it and really consider what this long passage uh, has to say to you because it's very, very important. And if you read it and consider it, it'll blow your mind. Uh, this is not the thinking has been done, brothers. This is go and search this out, sisters, and understand what is being said. So Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. Let me read it to you and let me preface it with, the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, we are, no, we are not like the children of Israel. And I'll just preface that with this. We are not like the children of Israel under the law of Moses at the time of Mount Sinai. Ready? For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. He's referring to what it was like for the children of Israel looking at Sinai. Moses is looking at it. There's tempest, there's blackness, there's scary stuff. He says, in the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken unto them anymore, for they could not endure that which being commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned and thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. So what the writer does there is he says, we are not like that. We aren't looking at this mountain that can't be touched. And if an animal touched it, you'd kill it. And Moses was afraid of what was going on there. We are not like that. And he goes on. But you are coming to the Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and the sprinkling of blood that speaketh better things than that of Abel. He says, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. 
For if they escaped not, if they escaped not, who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice shook the earth. Okay, now here, that's a long stuff. Now here, hang with me, here we go. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing, the removing of those things that are shaken, of things that are made, of things which, so that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Let me ask you a question. Can a brick and mortar church be shaken? It absolutely can. So should one remain? No. Can men and their authority and their, and, their, and their groups be shaken? They certainly can. They don't remain. He says, yet once more I'm going to come and I'm going to shake everything so that anything that cannot be shaken will remain. Wherefore, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. That's the kingdom we belong to. Not one that can be shaken, one that cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That's the end of that quote. If you read that contextually, look at what they experienced at Moses and the children of Israel and the mountain shaking and all this stuff. And then the writer, and then God says, listen, I'm going to shake everything one more time. I believe that is completely talking about his shaking uh, Jerusalem up in 78. The priesthood's destroyed, and everything that could be shaken was shaken then, so that anything that cannot be shaken will remain. And what is that? The Spirit of God that is within us. How we have a relationship with Him directly. That cannot be shaken. Men shaken, buildings shaken, priesthood shaken, genealogy shaken, temples shaken, all that earthly stuff, brick and mortar shaken, institutions shaken, but not the relationship we have with Christ through our faith in Christ uh, Jesus and by the Spirit. All right, last one, Hebrews 3.9. It's shorter, much shorter. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. And we've been really trying to push. Look at these guys who are dividing over what you think about this and what you think about that. We have given you some Bible that say, look at, don't get caught up in this. Let love abound, not with meats, which have not profited them, which have been occupied therein. All right, with that, we are going to have a word of prayer. Derek, we're going to have a word of prayer, and Betty Jo is going to give it. Betty Jo, you got to come and stand on that blue square. She is fighting us. Merle, will you turn the camera? Derek is out at the bar early tonight. <laughs> and right on Betty Jo, there she is. that they have 
fears and doubts of their hearts. Lord, I pray that you will just establish yourself in us. We give you thanks and praise for all that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Betty Jo. Okay, we have been talking about the different views that existed during Joseph Smith's time uh, on the makeup of God or the ontology of God. And um, those views included, so far, we've talked about creedal Trinitarianism. We've talked about modalism of the Sibelianist type and of the non-Sibelianist type. And we talked about Unitarian views. And then we started mentioning about how the founder of Mormonism included these various elements, Trinitarianism, modalism, in his early writings, and especially in the Book of Mormon. And um, last week we pointed out that where Joseph Smith once said that the personage in the Godhead were two, just two, father and son, that by February of 1841, 11 years after publishing the Book of Mormon, uh, at a time when he and his followers had relocated to a place called Nauvoo, Illinois, Smith said that the Godhead was three separate bodies, which is a form that is known among theologians as social Trinitarianism, which claims that the members of the Godhead are one in purpose, but separate in substance. Now, listen closely to how Smith articulated how these different roles were agreed upon by the members of the Godhead. You ready? It says, quote, he said, an everlasting covenant was made between the three personages before the organization of earth and relates to their dispensation of things to men on earth. These personages, according to Abraham's record, are called God the first, the creator, God the second, the redeemer, and God the third, the witness or testator. Does that sound wild to you? It is wild. I mean, where on earth would Smith come up with such things about the members of the Godhead before the earth was created, making covenants with each other about who would do what, and then where would he get the audacity to say it as if it was gospel fact? Perhaps Smith, the great religious synthesizer we've always claimed him to be, got the notion from the Protestants, even John Calvin. That's right. The idea that members of the Godhead made a pre-earth covenant with each other was taught in Reformed theology, also known as covenant theology, also known as Calvinism, in the 19th century. Let me give you the quote. In fact, an 1823 Calvinist creed says this, quote, God from eternity made a gracious covenant or plan for the salvation of man. The parties to this covenant are the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The creed continues saying, distinctive operations are ascribed to each person, creation and election to the Father, redemption to the Son, sanctifying and sealing to the Holy Spirit. Because Smith, as we noted, would later recite something almost verbatim from what was postulated by the Calvinists, even to the point of making the Father the Creator instead of the Son, it seems that elements of Calvinistic Protestantism played a strong role in his burgeoning ideas on the makeup of God. 
In other words, Smith being Smith, he at first stood on the Protestant teaching of Trinity. But instead of remaining there, he launched that concept out further than what had already been established. In March of 1839, in the Doctrine and Covenants, Smith intimated an early idea of there being more than one God. Now we're starting to see him get into more than one God by this late date of 1839. But it wasn't until 1842 that he specifically referred to the Godhead as consisting of three separate beings who were also three gods. Okay? In other words, by 1842, Smith seems content to think that the three persons of the Trinity merely agreed with each other, but were not one corporally. They were three separate gods. The last time he spoke in public before his death, he repudiated the doctrine of the Trinity completely. It was in June 16, 1844, where he said, Men say there is, I quote, one God. Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are the only one God. It is a strange God, anyhow. Three in one and one in three, end quote. It was at this time that he added that the Godhead was made of three personages and three gods. All right? From all this, we can see that Smith went from endorsing elements of the Trinitarian God in the Book of Mormon, and then a Sabellianist idea of the modalist God in, as well in the Book of Mormon, to a Godhead consisting of only two persons. He clearly said the Godhead is two persons, Father and Son, with the Holy Spirit not being a person, but serving as the mind of Father and Son, to the Godhead becoming three persons, to the Godhead finally becoming three gods. That was the way he descended, in my estimation. Uh, and I really think that much of the fault for Smith leading people who followed him away from the one God of the Book of Mormon is partly due to creedal Trinitarianism, who made God so darn confusing, so nonsensical, and so unknowable that Smith, trying to restore true Christianity back to the earth, allowed himself to move away from the Trinitarian stance, but he moved away in the wrong direction. Imagine that at the time Smith was alive, that the popular view, Trinitarianism, was right in front of him. So just imagine, Trinitarianism and how creedal Trinitarianism is right here. Smith could go to the left of Trinitarianism, or he could have gone to the right to distance himself from that confusing idea that had come from uh, uh, Constantine and those around him. To the left was his ultimate teaching of three gods. He could have gone to the right and taught one God and one only whose word became flesh and dwelt among us in the name of Jesus and whose actual spirit fills those who follow Jesus. He could have moved to that side and, and of one God, maintaining the sound creed that all Jews, all Muslims, all Christians have, that God manifested himself in the flesh called Jesus and in the spirit once Jesus ascended. He could have gone that way. The idea of who the one God is and the fact that he sent his son to save us 
is evidenced in the way God is introduced all through the New Testament. I want you to just pay attention to what the New Testament says, the writers of the New Testament. In Romans 1.8, Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. That's what he says. 1 Corinthians 1.3 says, Grace be unto you and peace from God, our Father, and from the Lord, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.2 says, Grace be to you and peace from God, our Father, and from the Lord, Jesus Christ. Already we clearly see that the Father is always called God, my God, God the Father, God our Father, with Jesus clearly being addressed each time as the Lord, and sometimes Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter was clear when he said in 1 Peter 3.18, For Jesus Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Right? Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. This was the sole purpose of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God with us, to bring us to the invisible God, the one who could not interact with us directly. And in the end, because of his efforts as the word of God, condescending below all things and taking on flesh and sin, our single God will be all in all. Colossians 1.3 introduces God this way, saying, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. To God and the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's always set as God, as God with his son being our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. Was Jesus God? Absolutely. Paul says something interesting in 1 Timothy 1.1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. He reiterates this introduction in 2 Timothy saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That's how he says it. Distinguishing there, God. Non-Sabellianist modalism, while made an extremely dirty word by Trinitarianism, by Trinitarians for nearly 2,000 years, presents seekers with the truth of God in the clearest God-honoring representation of one God. His word made flesh, his spirit both here to redeem and sanctify and draw people to his word made flesh. For some reason, Smith did not move to the right of the Trinitarian mess and back to the modalist view that he included in the Book of Mormon, but he went to the left of it. And instead of choosing to recognize and honor one true and living God, he chose to recognize and honor three gods, and unfortunately, many more thereafter. It is this point where Smith really stepped beyond the parameters of biblical uh, representation and allowed for a multiplicity of gods in the way he describes uh, deity. According to Professor Harrell, Smith developed his thoughts on a plurality of gods when he was studying Hebrew with a professor named Josiah Sykes in 1835 and 1836. And it was here at this time that Smith learned that the Hebrew term Elohim 
is actually a plural of the Hebrew word El. So after learning that, he wrote in his book of Abraham, quote, God's created the heavens and the earth. In March of 1839, he spoke of a council of the eternal God of all other gods, which got together before this world was. Harold points out that it isn't clear whether Smith thought that this was gods with a lowercase g, or if it were got people who were, had resurrected and reached the level of being gods. Many believe that when the book of Abraham speaks of the gods who organize and form the heavens and the earth, that this was speaking of noble spirits pre-existing rather than resurrected beings who had attained godhood. In other words, it is thought that these people were, as Smith himself said, quote, exalted themselves to be gods even from before the foundation of the world, adding, and they are the only gods I have reverence for. Smith said, these gods I speak of in Abraham, they exalted themselves to becoming gods, and he says, and they are the only gods I have reverence for. So we see him really going off the mark here now. He started off very, very uh, in line and in harmony with biblical uh, ideas relative to God. But then he, instead of going to the right, he went to the left and he's polytheism. Now, the LDS would say, no, it's not polytheism, it's henotheism, because the LDS say, we have one God and that's the only God with which we have to do. But, uh, and that's what henotheism is. People who say there's other gods, uh, but they only worship the one. Um, but Psalm 33.6 supports the modalist tradition, which says, by the word of the Lord, that's Yahweh, by the way, the personal name of the single God, Yahweh, by the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, were the heavens made, and the host of all them by the breath of his mouth. So we have all three manifestations of God there. We have Yahweh himself. We have his word that, by which he created the heavens, and we have the breath of his mouth, the pneuma, the spirit that goes where it wants to do his work, all three manifested in that passage. So uh, I'm going to cut it short right there and, and just say, by, indeed, by uh, Harrell in his book writes, indeed, by June of 1844, it was reported that Joseph was teaching that there are innumerable gods as much above God that presides over this universe as he is above us. By, so by June of 1844, Smith was completely polytheistic in his teachings of an eternal regression of God, etc., etc. Adding fuel to the fire, Smith said, quote, God the Father of Jesus Christ had a father. And we, quote, may suppose that he had a father also. Were, where was there ever a son without a father? is what Smith said, end quote. In all honesty, creedal Trinitarianism gave him fuel for this thinking. Creedal Trinitarianism, who says the father and son existing like a father and son on this earth existed forever, uh, and then the Holy Spirit being a third person that has existed forever. So there are the three. They, we say they're one in substance, one in purpose, but that is what gave him fuel to the fire. Say, well, if there's a father and a son, 
where, how could there be a father? He had to have had be the son of somebody and he went and he took off from that. We're going to uh, stop there and uh, move on, open up the phone lines. I've got a lot more, but we're gonna leave it for next week. And uh, phone lines are 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Call in if you have comments or questions. And uh, before we go to any calls we might have or the emails, take a look at this. Okay, some off-air questions uh, from Hayden. Hi, Sean. If we as Christians today possess the Holy Spirit, how come we can't perform miracles like opening blind people's eyes from birth and raising the dead like the early church did? Um, it's a great question, and uh, it's something that we covered when we talked about the miracles of faith healers and word of faith people, etc., in the church today. Uh, I, I have no problem with there being miracles and God performing miracles, I think he does them all the time through different means today. But we have to remember when we read the New Testament, the purpose of miracles then. Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament as opening the eyes of the blind and causing the lame to leap as a heart. It was prophesied. So when he came, he did those miracles to fulfill those prophecies. Then he told his apostles, listen, when you go out, you're going to do miracles too so that it will prove that I am with you, that you are mine. So uh, that is the justification for the miracles that were performed in abundance in the New Testament at that time, because they didn't have a written word. They didn't have any way of proving who they were other than through the miracles that they did. So, uh, you know, are there miracles today by people who possess the Holy Spirit? I think there are. But I don't think that they are to the same magnitude. Now, some people say, look, at those miracles are continuing to go on in, in third world nations. And uh, the, the dead are being raised every day over there. Stuff like that. It's always in third world nations. They say America's too um, bloated to receive the spirit in the same way. I don't know the truth of all that. It might be true. It might not. But bottom line, I think the New Testament uh, examples of miracles was for a very specific purpose. From Mike, he says, Joseph Smith, born 1805, and then plus 14 years, first vision, spring of 1820, Book of Mormon, first printed 1830. Why was Joseph Smith confused on the ontology of God 10 years before the Book of Mormon was printed, since this was answered presumably when he saw God and Jesus? It's a great question. We asked that last week. If the first vision was first, and that is really the chronology of LDS history, then Joseph would have seen God the Father and the Son as separate and distinct, standing above him in the air and all of that, and he would have clearly known what to write in the Book of Mormon. But unfortunately, ten years later, he produces the Book of Mormon that gives us contrary uh, theology for the ontology or makeup of God. 
And so, Mike, uh, I would suggest that what happened there was that the first vision was not the first event uh, of Mormonism. It was recreated, post-dated, inserted in, and uh, so that he could justify his views of God. And the, the way we support that is the fact that not one newspaper, not one personal journal, nothing was ever written by anybody saying there was a 14-year-old boy who said he saw God today. Nobody, and all the criticism he says that was heaped upon him, is revisionist history to make his story complete. But also ask, why does the LDS Church care more for temple work and the dead than the living? Most UK chapels have no wheelchair ramp facilities to the stands. The sign language books are in American Sign Language, one alien to British Sign Language users, and few facilities and events ever cater to the disabled. Home support is woeful, and generally they seem to be neglected, a neglected embarrassment left out of mainstream activities. Could it be that the priesthood and Masonic rituals cannot be proven on the dead, but the failure to heal and receive correct revelation makes the disabled an embarrassment to the fact that as priesthood holders, they can be shown as impotent and sterile in priesthood powers? Uh, uh, that's very interesting. And, you know, I think the disabled uh, are always uh, going to get the short end of the stick uh, because us uh, thriving people who have healthy legs and limbs and eyes and ears, uh, we don't have much understanding of what they go through, and so we don't necessarily cater to them. But um, it's a good question, Mike. Uh, this is from Andrew. The topic, Jesus is black. I have been watching your TV show for a very long time. I was wondering, since you have lots of knowledge regarding scripture about Jesus, of his skin being oily, kind of dark, or of a black color. There is a scripture in Revelation 1.15. It says, and he gives me the scripture. What's your personal view of this scripture? Uh, it would be nice if you could do a TV program on this subject. Uh, Andrew, whatever kind of skin Jesus had, oily, dry, tan, white, dark, is utterly irrelevant. And that's why I probably don't think we have descriptions of him in scripture, because he came to save the whole world. Uh, but I can say this, Jesus was not black as an African-American black. Uh, sorry. Uh, but he neither was he Irish or Scottish or Hispanic. He was a Jew, period. Did he have olive skin? Presumably. Uh, but he came to save us. And regarding the passage in Revelation, it says, And his feet were like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And the sound of his voice is many waters. In this passage, I'm assuming that Andrew is using to support that his feet were burned in, like in a furnace. But brass, when it is illuminated under fire, glows clear-like. And I think when he says that his feet were as fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, it's talking about his skin being more uh, uh, translucent rather than blackened or opaque. So I hope that helps, my friend. Uh, Sean, what law was John talking about in 1 John 3, 4? Uh, we'll have to answer that next week, so I'm not going to go to that. Uh, I'll look it up, and we'll try to talk about it next week. This is from Cole, who said, I've wrote before. I'm praying this gets read. 
I'll try to keep it short. I'm 21 and help with youth ministry in our church. We have lots of kids that come on a weekly night. Tonight was different. We had what's called Fields of Faith at a high school. These are the denominations I know that were there, Methodist, Baptist, and even non-denominational. Uh, I know that non-denominational is, is, isn't considered a denomination, but the fact that three sects of churches can come together and worship for him was crazy. Three speakers spoke and songs were sang. If this gets read on air, let me just tell the audience right now, you can be any denom you want to be. The very fact that different minds and bodies can come together and be one mind and one body is inspirational. I would absolutely agree, Cole. Again, not preaching ecumenism, not preaching that. Just saying those people who worship Jesus, we should be able to come together and worship him under the same roof. Now he asks, and it's a good question, think about how you would respond if you were in the same room as a Catholic, a Methodist, a Baptist, Pentecostal, I want to add a Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventist, a Mormon, a Baha'i, and they all were worshiping Jesus. How would you respond? He says, if you do, would not like to worship with them, you are not wanting unity in God's body, but you are wanting division. Straight up. And he says, this is church. Thank you, Cole. It's very good. Jason writes, just wondering how or to contact you on Facebook. Uh, I wrote him back and said, you can't. I'm personally repulsed by disgrace book and almost all it represents. He wrote back, I'm convinced that you've avoided it because it would afford others an increased capacity to have you take ownership of the contempt you have for the LDS church and for the saints. Cowardly behavior is consistent with infidels and so there it is. Um, let me explain really quickly. Uh, in fact, our ministry, we were meeting and talking about this the other day about Facebook and things like that. Uh, my daughters, different people I know and love have Facebook, are engaged in Facebook. For me personally, again, let me reiterate, for me personally, I think Disgracebook is antithetical to the spirit of Christianity. Uh, it's about, from what I see, more about boasting pride, selfies, bragging, this is my family, this is how great my life is, this is what I'm doing, arguing, attacking, gossiping, and the world than it is about anything that's good. Now, I know there's good things that come out of it, but to me, when I just weigh it on a scale, it's very simple to see for me, I don't want anything to do with it. That's why I'm not on it. Our ministry, by the way, also has always wanted to know that God gives us the increase. And so we have not appealed to social forums like Disgracebook to build a bunch of likes and keep everybody motivated to come and get involved in campus. We haven't done that for the simple reason we have taken another approach from the beginning. Do what we do and let God take it where it's going to go. And uh, we've seen him do remarkable things with the ministry without any of our efforts. All we do is try to support and, and build as we go, and he's built it. If we were to appeal to these uh, other means, for me, again, I would not know if it was me building it or if it was God. 
And so that's the approach that we have taken. We have Jordan in Oceanside, California on line one. Jordan, you are on the air. What's up, Sean? How you doing, man? Doing well. How you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Hey, uh, great show. Um, I just, you know, earlier when you were talking about the incident at McDonald's, about that dispensationalist coming after you and, you know, accusing you to go to hell and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to me, I mean, I, I watched your show for a long time, read some of your books. I mean, I don't know. I, the things that, are you, that you're doing, to me, don't seem the way that these guys are coming at you in Utah, it seems like it's just like you have like a red, like a what, like a red flag on you. Yeah. And my question is, is because I go to um, a Bible study every Tuesday night, and very diverse views. I mean, I, you know, I have you know views of preterism and um, you know Gabriel, mankind. I mean, eternal punishment, all that, all that stuff that's not orthodox. And the guys that I go with are, you know, some of them are Zionists, some of them are, you know, they believe in tongues and whatnot. But we still, at the end, we pray together, we give hugs, and we call it a day. Hmm. I mean, we question each other, but we never question our salvation. So my question is, is this just like the Utah, is this just Utah Christians that have this so, this huge, you know, I don't know, condemn a fellow Christian who doesn't see the same way as, as you do. I mean, I, it's just strange to me because, I mean, I don't see that where I'm at. I, I mean, I'm in California, I don't know, because it's just a liberal state or what, but <laughs> I just don't see that, you know? I don't know if I'm making any sense, but no, it's I think so strange to me. Jordan, I think you're, you're uh, onto something. You're making me think of it, and other people have commented on this, and I think you probably uh, have your thumb on the pulse of something important, and that is this. In Utah, there is such an apologetic fervor here because we are at war uh, with the LDS and their culture and their doctrine quite a bit as Christians. We shouldn't be, but, but we are. And so there is, this, there is this thought that we need to be united on this absolute approach in order to do it right. And also, there is, a, there is kind of a spirit that says... It's my way or the highway among the group that have united. And if you, if you aren't on that same highway, uh, it's conform with us or be cast out because we are not going to let you muddy the waters and help people uh, think of things differently than the way we're presenting them. And I understand it. I get that. But I think you make a great point. I think it is more here than it is probably uh, most other places in the U.S. at least. Right. Yeah, I get that. The, the LDS you know, platform in Utah, I mean, yeah, I get that. And it's probably, I mean, I, I was raised Mormon, my whole family's Mormon, and I mean, it, it's funny, I mean, it, it seems like as you grow in the faith and you, you get in the Word and, and you see really what it's about, and, and you, you touch on this so much, and that's why I like your show, and what you stand for is love, and, yeah. and love is what unifies everything. Yeah. I mean, that's what bonds everything together, and I, I just don't get it, and I think you're your um, context, you always say context, context when it comes to the Bible, because a lot of these things that they, I think, when we divide over <clears throat> as Christians is the context of, you know, um, sound doctrine, and yeah. uh, you're a heretic, cast them out. And, and if you look at the context of that, it was to a certain, uh, was certain Jews who were bringing the law back into the, uh, the um, Church of Grace, of course, yeah. and, and I think that's 
if, if we, and I think it all comes down to context, and I think that's that's a good thing that you hit on too as well. I mean, it, it's so huge when it comes to um, putting applying it to our day to day lives as Christians in today's yeah. age. Hey, Jordan, I wish I could come in and uh, fellowship with you and be able to sit in that Bible study you go with and spout out different things and be received with uh, that because I think it's great. Now, I have to admit, at, at campus here, there's a lot of great people who are very open-minded and they allow all of us to kind of figure things out and there isn't that spirit. So it's not ubiquitously through the state of Utah. There's a lot of good Christians who are relaxed on it. It's more kind of these guys who lead the apologetically driven uh, mindset. Right, right. You're right. Thanks yep. for the call, my brother. Really appreciate it. Yeah, keep it up, man. I mean, don't lose faith, man. You're doing great. Love Thank, you, man. Thanks. Love you, too. Bye, Jordan. Bye. Uh, and, you know, having said that, and there's guys, you know, they're, they're uh, calling me a cult leader, and they're saying, don't go to that guy's church. And, and I understand you mean well. I really do. And I understand that you truly do believe that, that theology saves us. And, uh, there, but I just would petition you to, uh, like Jordan talked about, let's try to love each other more and give up some of the acrimony and the finger pointing and the uh, setting us each other in these camps of no good. And let's just try to let uh, love prevail. And it's not easy. I mean, I, I would probably love to argue with all of you on different things and call you names too. I get it, but we're just trying to grow up a little bit and raise the bar so that here in Utah, we can present to LDS people faith in Jesus Christ, love for God, love for each other. And with that, come join us next week here on Heart of the Matter.